Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist, Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to the show. We are looking forward today to talking to you about whatever you're interested in related to gardening. Maybe it's houseplants today. It's a good day to be inside taking care of houseplants. Uh, maybe you're starting some seeds for transplants for your spring garden. Uh, or maybe that lawn that just didn't look real good last year. We'd like to take another run and start at it and see what we can do with it to get it in better shape this year. Anything like that, give us a call. Our number is 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. I want to talk a little about something came in from email. Uh, Stephen is asking about a Vitex tree uh, that is suckering really heavily. In other words, it's sending up shoots from the base. Uh, you've got your older Vitex trunk and branches that typically have kind of a grayish look with the bark flaking off some. And then you've got these brand new shoots coming up out of the bottom. That's not unusual for a Vitex. Uh, it's not unusual for a lot of plants. The um, the way the best thing you can do if you have a Vitex is train it to one trunk uh, initially if that's what you want, if you want a single trunk tree, or train it to multi-trunks, which is going to be a lot easier to manage. But either way, uh, the uh, side shoots or the, the suckers that come up, you need to prune those off, and you want to prune them off all the way back to where they join either a trunk or you know the base of the plant where the trunk and roots come together uh, because at the base of a shoot like that you've got little buds and those buds initially are ready to sprout and grow uh, in time they sort of get covered up by bark and I guess you could say they're dormant uh, and uh, they don't grow until something pushes and forces them to grow that's why when you cut a tree off you know knee high make a little stump you get all these shoots popping up from the base of the trunk at the soil line those are buds that long ago went just kind of got covered up and went to sleep but they're there and they're waiting uh, and some of our plants do this suckering a lot crepe myrtles some crepe myrtles are really really prone to sucker uh, and when you cut when you cut a branch off and let's say you leave an inch at the bottom sticking out there are a lot of buds around the base of that that shoot or sucker that you cut off so when you do here comes some more now if you cut as close as you can it doesn't mean you won't have any suckers but at least you'll minimize them as much as possible there are also some sprays you can spray on it that basically are a hormone uh, that that stops the sucker from growing it, it uh, inhibits that growth I believe one of them is called sucker stopper or something like that that sounds about like the right name for that uh, but anyway most people don't want to get out and have to spray their plants to stop it as far as what you know what do you do if you have them and you really don't care whether you have them or not well I would thin them out to just maybe one or two uh, additional ones and um, just let that become more of a, a vitex bush in this case. Uh, if you still want to stay with the tree, that certainly uh, is just fine uh, to do. But vitex is one of our summer flowering shrubs. So as we've talked about before, 
when you have a spring flowering shrub, that plant set those flower buds last late summer and fall. And uh, they were matured and developed, and then they go into winter waiting for the warm weather to pop out and start growing. Uh, a plant that blooms in the summer sets its buds on current new growth, new season's growth. And that would be like an oleander, for example. So you could cut an oleander to the ground, and all those shoots that come up, are, they're, you know, all things being equal, they're going to bloom again the next year because they, they, they set their blooms on current season's growth. During the spring, uh, typically spring and early summer, there should be some, some buds and flowers occurring. So with Vitex, uh, we, we don't want to cut everything off, uh, but if you do, it's still going to send out shoots and will be flowering uh, in, the, in the summertime. Uh, I know those suckers can be a pain to deal with, Stephen, so uh, I guess I feel your pain. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's go to the email again. And we actually have a multi-part question uh, from Thomas and Rosina. Uh, the first question is about a fig tree. The cultivar is called Fignominal. Fignominal fig tree. And I actually had never heard of the Fignominal fig tree, so I checked it out. Uh, you know, we get these new miracle plants that pop up all the time, and I uh, very seldom see one that really establishes and becomes a mainstay uh, for, in this case, fruit growing. Uh, but it doesn't mean it can occur. It certainly can. Uh, this one, if you if you look into it, and this is just kind of like a tip on searching, when the only places that are carrying something are, for the most part, more obscure uh, websites, uh, obscure nurseries that kind of carry one of everything and, and do mail order, and your fruit-producing uh, nursery garden centers are, are not offering it for sale, that's something that makes me kind of sit back a little bit. And it doesn't mean it's not good. It just means, hmm, so I might want to think about it a little bit. From what I can tell, Phenomenal seems to do okay. I have not had time to look up enough information on it, but a lot of figs will do okay here. Uh, if you wanted to give it a try, I'd say go for it. You know, gardening, we're, we, we garden to have fun, right? I mean, we garden to eat, we garden for exercise, we garden for mental health, we garden for all kinds of reasons. But if you want to try something out, there's no shame in trying it out and it doesn't work out. Uh, try something else out. So I would say give it a try. And by the way, if you do, let me know. I'd be curious. Maybe see some pictures of it and see how it does and what your experience is. There's always new things coming on. And uh, in our research and trials at Texas AgriLife Extension, uh, we can't try every single plant or plant variety that might come out. Uh, and so sometimes we it takes us a little while to you know, find out about some of these things, especially the ones that are more more uh, obscure and not destined for commercial production. And Phenomenal would certainly fit that category. Our phone number is 845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu.
Uh, continuing on with the emails, uh, we had a question again, another one from uh, Thomas and Rosina about uh, vegetable beds. Uh, if you want to grow, you know, some just standard smaller size vegetables and vegetable slash herb type plants, you know, green beans, uh, basil, dill, uh, those kinds of things, how deep, what is the ideal depth for the soil in a raised bed? So assuming the bottom of the bed is open, and the roots have access to the soil below, if you even get up 8 to 10 inches, that's probably high enough for the plants to do pretty well. And, and I say high enough because typically we're putting in a raised bed to improve drainage. A lot of our soils are heavy clay, and so if you plant right down in the soil, uh, especially if the spot is not well drained, that's a problem. But if you can get up 8 or 10 inches for these small uh, statured vegetables and vegetable slash herbs, they'll do okay. Now you can make it higher. I like mine higher. I want to be able to sit down on the edge of the bed and, uh, you know, do any weeding, planting, harvesting, those kinds of things. So I make mine a little bit higher. Now at some point, when you get up to around knee high or more, then you've got a lot of bed mix going in there and that bed mix is going to sink down in time. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. You just add more and add more and add more, but you're going to be doing a lot more of that the taller you make the bed, trying to maintain that depth of bed. So it's a cost, and it's a little bit of a um, work to, uh, activity to try to keep those beds topped off and, and at the depth you want them. So I generally aim down, let's say, knee-high, uh, down to even maybe 18 inches, 10, 12 inches, 18 inches down in that range, just so I have something that I can sit on the edge of. Uh, so I, I think that if you get a good quality bed mix, there's a lot of soil yards in the area that will sell you a mix that uh, is made for vegetable gardening. You just want something that's fine screened. In other words, not big old chunks of wood that was decomposed, but still is very chunky. Uh, those are a problem in vegetable gardens because when you're wanting to plant a little seed just at the right depth and you've got a real chunky mix, it's essentially impossible to get it planted like at the depth you want it and to keep it moist and, and covered and have good soil seed contact. So that's, that's the reason I would say check them out. Go to the place you're going to buy, uh, walk out and, and Grab a handful of soil, smell it, should have a fresh earthy smell, not a sour smell or a swamp gas smell, uh, indicating good aerobic decomposition, and it ought to be a finer textured. Now, it's not going to be potting soil like that fine textured, but you want to get kind of uh, away from the chunky. Uh, another question uh, that they ask, I'm, I tell you what, I'm going to get to this one in just a second. Uh, right now, let's go to the phones, and the number is 845-5689, and we're going to talk to Robert. Hey, Robert. Hey, Skip. What's up? Got it. Yeah, I've got a uh, pear tree. When I, It's an Asian pear, and the co-op didn't fail to point out that it needs a pollinator. So I bought a Bartlett pear, planted next to it. The problem is they never seem to bloom at the same time. Yeah, the Bartlett probably blooms a little later. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a little higher chill pair, and so that doesn't surprise me that it, it's a little slower to wake up coming out of winter. Uh, you've got a couple of options. Any way, to, any way to trick it? Not really. Not to make that tree. Well, there's not a, I'll just say there's not a practical way and, and no, for a home, home grower to do something like that. 
what what I would suggest is if you got space and you don't mind another pear tree, then get you another pear that's going to bloom at about the same time as the Asian pear that you uh, already have. Uh, the other the other thing is if you have a friend or neighbor that has a pear tree that blooms at about the same time as your Asian pear, uh, you can go over and if they'll allow, snip out a couple of small fruiting branches. You know, you're not sawing off a major limb. You're just cutting a small branch with some, with some blooms on it and put those in, a, in something you can hang in your tree. Uh, I, sometimes I'll use a little like a soft drink can uh, and make a couple of holes in the top so you can wire it to a branch or tie it to a branch. Some people just put these kinds of things in a bucket under the tree, but that requires a bigger limb uh, to, you know, for a bucket. Uh, and, and the bees will visit both of those blooms. You'll need to replace that branch maybe once over the course of the bloom cycle, uh, but you ought to get pretty good pollination that way. So in other words, you're just bringing a branch in to do the work. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, what what's the uh, best uh, fig fig tree for this area? You know, I, I would probably say Celeste for a number of reasons. It's proven. It's a very good fig. It does well here. Uh, it actually was developed at Texas A&M University, uh, so it should do well here. Uh, there are also some other good ones. There's a couple of LSU figs, LSU Purple and LSU Gold, that are both pretty good figs. Then there are about 800 other varieties, many of which would grow yeah. here, but some of which are going to not do as well. Okay, appreciate it. Yeah, and hey, Robert, when you're looking at, at fig trees, uh, do a little research online uh, to learn a little more about them, and especially if it comes from a, a land-grant university-type system where they have done the trials and they can tell you things. Uh, sometimes an a nur uh, online nursery may not tell you some things about the fruit that you would get from, an, from a land-grant type thing, like Texas A&M. And what you want to look for are figs that have closed eyes. So that little belly button okay. on the end of the fig, if it's open, yep. then beetles and bugs get in there and they sour the fig. Uh, and when it sours, then the wasp come because it becomes a little uh, wasp beer joint hanging on the tree there with fermented sugars inside. And so you want to avoid the open eye figs and get a closed eye. Okay. Will Celeste do that? Yes, sir. I would never recommend an open eye. That's right. Okay. Thank you a lot. All right. Good luck with that. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Our phone number, 979-845-5689, or by email, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, the question, along with uh, vegetables we were just talking about, was are there any commercially available local uh, locally commercially available raised beds. Um, sort of, I would say. Uh, first of all, you could, you could buy one of those cattle water troughs, the big oval ones, drill holes in the bottom, and you've got a commercially available raised bed because it can drain. Um, and I, when I say drill holes in the bottom, I also mean drill holes around the, the outside, bottom of the outside wall. Uh, because sometimes when you set one of those on heavy clay soil, 
yes, there's a hole, but if the hole is right behind the hole, it's all packed up with heavy clay. It's not going to drain very well unless you put them up on bricks or something. There's also different kinds of things that you can buy at places that sell lumber that are kind of a modular put together type of bed. Uh, I'm not super fond of those, but that's available. But I think what you're asking for is more of one of these uh, modular beds that you put together. And it would be like a, a corrugated type of galvanized metal that's painted or coated, I should say. And uh, you just screw the panels together. You can make a long oval bed. You, you can get it in different heights. You can make an L-shaped or C-shaped bed by just buying the panels and putting them together in that way. And the companies that sell those are available online. Uh, I don't know a local garden center carrying them. If you're listening and you have them and you're carrying them, please let me know uh, because I would like to know that. Uh, but those are pretty nice. The only thing about those is the edge is pretty, pretty thin. Uh, so I talked about being able to sit on a bed. You know, if it's a two by 10, it's easy to sit on the edge. Uh, but this is, it's not just sharp metal. They give you a little strip to put over it to protect against the edge of the metal, but it still is a little thin to be sitting on, uh, and, and so you would want something you can carry around with you. So when you're doing work, you're not spending an hour in a half-stooped position because we all know how, how many visits to the chiropractor that can cause. So let's, uh, let's uh, find some way to, to en enjoy the garden without, without adding that degree of difficulty. Let's uh, go back to the phones now, the number 845-5689. And we're going to talk to Dan. Hey, Dan. Hey, Skip. Uh, thank you for the fruit tree program that you put on this oh, past weekend. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you could come out there. That was kind of fun. Yes. Um, related to dead wood, <laughs> I have a question for you about um, a wood ash or potash. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that our so soil is already in bad shape from our um, irrigation mm -hmm. uh, and the the pH of uh, the result of having a bonfire or an indoor fire mm -hmm. would only make that worse. Um, my question is about adding it into the compost. Okay. Uh, so if you have three by three by three compost been cooking away, um, could we get rid of some of the, the ash inside of the compost? Will that sort of neutralize its, its bad effects? Okay, that's a good question, Dan. I appreciate that. So you, you mentioned two things at the beginning that are actually a little different. One is the, the wood ash, which is what your question is really about. And then the term potash is often used for potassium. It's a description of the, I think it's K2O molecule the, that's potassium. Uh, but the wood ash, it's, it's the dose that matters. Uh, if your soil is already high pH, I just don't think I'd use it because all it's going to do is push further in that direction. Uh, I would start with a soil test. Uh, I haven't checked lately on the content of all the wood ash, but I think, I believe potassium is, is pretty high in that. And there's probably some mm -hmm. other things, well, there are some other things that are going to be high. Uh, and you wouldn't want to exacerbate, let's say, the nutrients in, in the, the wood ash are already excessive in your soil, so you wouldn't want to use them. But, but that being said, in general, a light dusting of ashes from the fireplace uh, is not going to hurt anything in the garden, and it will add nutrients in a mineral form because everything else is all the organic stuff's burned away. Uh, so it, it could be done, but 
just not too much. And with the, the compost, the same would be true. Uh, you know, as far as how much, well, again, without the soil test, it's kind of hard for me to say, you know, a large coffee can covers X square feet. Uh, okay. But, but I, I think that uh, the soil test is probably where I would start on that. And, uh, yeah, I think you'll... Um, related, um, have you ever heard that sulfur, uh, sort of elemental sulfur, will counter the, the pH of uh, wood ash or just... It, yeah, yeah. So, so we have we have things that move the pH up to more alkaline. The bigger number pH, like eight or nine. Nine would be pretty really too, way too high here, uh, and that would be something like lime uh, and wood ash will move them that way. And we have other things that move it up. Then we have things that move it down. And sulfur and aluminum sulfate and sulfur are the two primary things used to move the pH down. Now the devil's always in the details. So if your soil is sandy, it may be practical to move the pH down because sand is not very buffered. And when you add some sulfur, mix it in, give it some time to work, you can move the pH down. But in our heavy clays, they are so heavily buffered that you it, it just, maybe for a moment it dips down, then it bounces right back up. Uh, because there's a lot of residual, let's just say, alkalinity or the ability to neutralize that acidic sulfur compound. Uh, and so I would say in a, a, a silt or a clay-type soil, in most cases, you're not going to accomplish anything with sulfur to speak of. Okay. Uh, I have another question if you have Sure. Segment. Absolutely. You, you may enjoy this one. Um, so I, I suspect that many of your listeners, like myself, were a little over excited about uh, spring seed planting indoors okay and and now have way 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 too many seedlings <laughs> um, could you recommend any sort of groups maybe like 4-h um, that would potentially like these to have a sale or something like that or in this area Brazos County do you know of any yeah uh, places that they could be donated to um, I've already given Becky Gates, as many as they can handle. So. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know, I know that uh, thing about planting too much. I know better, and I do it every year. <laughs> so uh, as far as groups, I, I would, I guess I would talk to some schools with, with school gardens. We have a number of them around here that have a school garden. And if they do, and you could contact a teacher, I bet they would be glad to, to have some seedlings uh, to try out like that. Um, there are some community gardens around. Uh, there's one down at Detroit Street and College Station, and there are some others around. And they might also be willing to have that, uh, that kind of thing. It just depends on, you know, what do you have, tomato, pepper, eggplant, squash, and what varieties are they and stuff. And, and uh, I think you could get away or get rid of some of those there. I'm trying to think of uh, the food bank, which is out on the bypass on the west side. Uh, the Brazos Valley Food Bank, they have a garden, and I bet they could use a few there. If they're con I, th I haven't checked it lately, but if they're continuing on with that garden, they would probably like a few, and that'd certainly be a good cause. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to giving these people um, the hottest chilies on earth. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> well, forget the school hard. garden. <laughs> you don't want to set any children on fire, Dan. <laughs> All right, uh, well, thank you very much. 
I'd appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for the call. Oh, I tell you, the starting seeds, it's so fun. And, uh, you know, the seed packets, by and large, come with way too many seeds in them. Uh, not if you're trying to grow commercially, for sure. But, uh, you know, just think about this. If you've got you know, 25 tomato seeds in a seed packet, most people need two or three tomato plants. You know, that's going to that's gonna get them by. Now, I know we have people with big gardens that are plant 25, but uh, you can't eat that tom- many tomatoes. Uh, and so... Um, you just have to remember that just because the seeds are in the packet doesn't mean it has to go in the cell. And uh, here I am telling you that when I don't follow it myself. I'm always trying out new things and if, planting a few extra seeds. But the fun part is you do get you can give it away. You can give it away to friends. And, uh, and sometimes your germination rate is not so great. So maybe you planted twice as many as you need and only half of them came up. So there you go. Just a another thing to do. But hey, if you've never tried growing your own uh, transplants, you ought to try. Not, I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket so my garden was dependent on my transplant growing, but try a few things. The other, you know, another advantage of growing your own transplants is any given garden center is going to have a limited number of any particular species, tomatoes or peppers or whatever. And so if you're looking for something kind of unusual uh, or maybe brand new, those typically don't make it out to the mass market very fast. And so you can get ahead of the line by buying seeds of something like that and growing it yourself. And your local garden center can fix you up on the potting mix or the seed starting mix, the trays, uh, the, the little individual cell uh, packets that uh, you grow in. They can get you all set up on doing that. And some of them even on, on the lighting uh, for growing things. Uh, let's see, our phone number, 845 845- Five six eight nine eight four five fifty six eighty nine, or by email at garden success at tamu dot edu. Garden success at tamu dot edu. The nice thing about email is when you're wanting something identified or diagnosed with a good quality picture, uh, we can do a pretty good job of it. You know, as you're describing it on the phone and I'm trying to picture it, chances are what you're saying and seeing and what I'm picturing may not be exactly the same thing. Let's talk about some things going on around town. Uh, Tonight's a busy night. We've got a couple of activities tonight. The Post Oak Chapter of the Native Plant Society is going to have their meeting at 6.30 p.m. this evening, Thursday, February 2nd, at the Gary Halter Nature Center at Lick Creek Park. And Dr. Baron Rector, uh, Associate Professor and Range Specialist at Texas A&M, will discuss prairie change and weeds. Uh, Dr. Rector is a wealth of information on all things range, all, all things in the natural range habitat. Uh, you could... You could have him show up at a, man, he, you know, he's not open for business in this, but you have him show up at a property and start trailing him through the woods, and he would talk nonstop all day, and you would learn so much your head would explode. Uh, he is so uh, conscious and, and knowledgeable of, of all the issues related to uh, native plants and prairie restorations and, and uh, the uses of plants, uh, how Native Americans use that plant, all kinds of things like that. So you will not be disappointed. 6.30 p.m., Gary Halter Nature Center. It's free. Post Oak Chapter of the Native Plant Society of Texas. Uh, so hope you, can, hope you can make that out to Lick Creek Park. Also tonight at the Larry Ringer Library 
at 6.30. The gardens at Texas A&M, that's the campus gardens on West Campus, uh, they are going to, well, uh, Dr. or Mr. Joseph Johnson, who is the head of the gardens, uh, is going to be speaking about all things roses. He'll talk about different types and varieties of roses. Uh, you'll learn about some rose care and maintenance tips. Uh, but that's uh, Joseph Johnson from the gardens on campus out at the Larry J. Ringer Library out on Harvey Mitchell Parkway South. Uh, in College Station, just just on the the um, Harvey Mitchell. You passed it a hundred times. If you don't know what it is, when you see it, you go, "Oh, that's the thing." He he's a Joseph's a good speaker. He's very knowledgeable about plants. He has managed public gardens in in different parts of Texas for uh, many years now, and now we're fortunate to have him here at the gardens on campus. And uh, if you want to pick his brain, uh, this is your opportunity tonight, uh, 6:30 to 7:30 p.m. All right, uh, let's see, what else was I going to go here? Okay, I wanted to talk a little bit about this time of the year, and I'm going to use the word urgency to do certain kinds of things. Um, we live in an area where our spring, summer, winter, uh, fall seasons are, are kind of unique. If you grew up or came from the Midwest, California, or the East Coast somewhere, uh, you have probably been accustomed to a very different season. By the way, we just had winter. That was the last two days. Uh, I hope we don't have any more, but uh, we usually have somewhere around three days of winter a year. We just don't know when they're going to be. Uh, but when, when we get into summer, that's when a lot shuts down. Uh, it gets too hot. Uh, large fruited tomatoes don't want to set fruit. And uh, even things like cucumbers and, and squash, uh, some, some types of squash, uh, they don't set fruit normally. And uh, there are other things that have an issue with the heat of summer. So for us, let's just use tomatoes as our example. If you want a really good tomato crop, maybe you want to can some tomatoes, dry some tomatoes. Uh, you know, process them in different ways like that. Make you some spaghetti sauce. Well, you want a lot of tomatoes. And to do that, you need to plant early and you need to plant a variety that's fast. You want a variety that makes you tomatoes in preferably 65 to 70 days. Uh, it's some, some of our varieties are a little longer than that. But if you pick a variety that's really long, like Brandywine, a real famous tomato, and a good tasting tomato, uh, a lot of the Brandywines are 78, 80 days. And so when you plant them, they will fruit. But about the time they set a fruit or two, it's too hot to set fruit anymore. And so you don't get the yield that you would otherwise. So planting as soon as we can, we're doing this gamble with the last frost. You know, our average last frost here is February 26th, I believe, or that's the actual average last freeze. And so, you know, if you go a little before that, you're gambling, you can cover them and get them through a light freeze. Uh, but if you go much later than that, if you wait until, let's just stretch it all the way, if you wait until late April to plant your tomatoes, you, you just are not giving them enough time to produce the bountiful crop you're hoping that they would produce. So timing is really important. Uh, we have some things that have to be done now if we're going to do them. If you want to grow onions, the bulbing types of onions, you need, you need to get those planted pretty soon. Uh, I, would, I would say definitely I'd get them in by mid-February if I could. Now, that's not to say if you plant in late February, you're not going to get any onions. It's just you need those plants to grow and get big so that when day length tells the plant start making a bulb, it's a big robust plant that can make a big robust bulb. And so that means 
planting them early. Don't delay. Uh, potatoes. We're in potato planting season as well. Uh, I just cut some up last night. I had some in a bag that I bought at one of our local uh, garden centers and I cut them into sections so that each section has at least two buds and is about the size of an egg. So don't just make little tiny sections. We call those seed pieces uh, because we're planting them like we would plant seeds, but they're not really seeds. Uh, but anyway, we call them seed pieces. Mine are now sitting with the cut side facing up uh, in the counter indoors. And after about three days or so, when that kind of uh, dries, that cut surface sort of dries over, uh, I'll put them out in the ground and they'll be less likely to rot because that, that is not just a brand new fresh cut sticking it in the ground. On some of mine too, I'm, I'm trying something out this year. I've done it before, but uh, starting them in little four inch pots with one potato per pot. Now, if you want to plant a lot of potatoes, that that's probably not a, a practical way to do it. But if you just want a, a few plants, maybe you've got, you know, two four by eight beds and you don't want all of the beds to be potatoes, you just want some, uh, that may be another way to start. And the reason I like that is uh, you can get them going uh, indoors where it's a little bit warmer. And then when you put them out, they already have roots in and they're taking off and growing. Uh, right now with all the rain we've had in these temperatures, uh, potatoes sitting in the ground are not going to be doing anything and for a while and they often will rot because of the excessive soil moisture and we've already talked about the issue with our our beds and our soil and drainage and everything like that so that's another little technique but planting onions now planting potatoes now uh, another thing would be pruning if you have a lot of pruning to do you want to get that done uh, at the end of winter or midwinter to the end of winter before the new bud growth begins. Now, if it's already started growing, you can still prune, but there's some other issues with that, such as the bark more likely to strip uh, when a branch comes off. Um, but pruning now for the heavier duty pruning allows that wound to heal as fast as it's going to heal, which is in the spring. Uh, most wound closure occurs in the spring. Fall is also a time of decent room uh, wound closure, but not as good as spring. And so go ahead and get it done now, and you will be well on your way by the end of this year to a wound that's that's starting to callus and close over. We Sometimes you hear people say it's healing. Well, trees don't heal. They just form callus and close over uh, or, you know, box off a wounded area. Uh, but that's that's what we're hoping because when that inner wood is exposed for an extended period of time with the rainfall that comes and goes, uh, you start to get decay on that inner wood and that's why we want to avoid that quick healing. Our phone number is 979-845-5689-5689 and email gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, give us a call. Let's talk about what's of interest to you. Since it's a day to be inside, and by the way, this weekend is not going to be a day to be inside. The rain's going to go away. The temperature's going to start back up. It'll still be a little on the cool side, but uh, a wonderful time to get out there and start doing some things in the garden. But in the meantime, uh, this 2023 is the year of the orchid. Uh, 
proclaimed by the National Gardening Bureau, which proclaims the year ofs on vegetables and the year ofs on perennials and the year ofs of now houseplants even. Uh, orchids are one of the largest uh, groups of plants in the world. I think there's more than 28,000 species, species, not varieties, species of orchid, orchids. They're, they say there are more orchids on the planet than mammals and birds. Now, I don't know who figured that out, but anyway. There are a lot of them. How about that? Uh, we can go back in fossil records and see that they've been along uh, approximately 100 million years, according to uh, the, the uh, uh, searching that's been done and examination of, of fossils, finding orchids back that far. They've been a popular thing for years. And there are a lot of types of orchids that you can grow in your house, not all 28,000 species. But there are a lot of types that people enjoy growing. There's no orchid easier than the Catalea orchid, or excuse me, the moth orchid. The moth orchid, uh, we call it the moth orchid. It sort of looks, uh, sort of looks like a moth, I guess. And um, the the proper name for it is Phalaenopsis, or the moth orchid. I said Catalea. That's another another orchid. But nothing is easier to grow than the Phalaenopsis. And that's the one, if you go into a grocery store and you see all the orchids when you walk in the front door, that that's moth orchids 99.9% .9 of the time uh, that you're looking at. They're easy. What they don't want is soggy roots. Orchids don't live in the soil. They live on trees. They attach to the bark of trees and they live up on a tree. So what does that tell you about what an orchid wants? Well, it's going to get rainfall in a tropical area, but it's not going to sit in standing water. Uh, it is going to have uh, access to a little bit of uh, nutrients. There's nutrients that come down in the rain, some like nitrogen. And there's also things called parrots flying through the jungles that are helping add some nutrient as well, if you get my drift. So moth orchids are, are something that if you've got a bright indoor area, not direct sun, but very bright, uh, and if you can create a little bit of humidity, it helps. It's not essential, but it does help if it has a little humidity. I put my orchids oftentimes in the bathroom just because, you know, with the steam of a shower, uh, it's gonna, you're going to create a little bit uh, happier environment for an orchid that way. Some people have a tray of pebbles that they set the orchid pot on, and then they just put water in the tray, and so that creates this little humid environment as the water evaporates. Uh, bright lights, good drainage, uh, and that's, you know, fertilizing very little, very dilute. Uh, there's some other things that you can do to care for them through the year, but I have had some orchids that at times have been neglected badly. Yes, I'm admitting that on the air. Uh, neglected badly, and they still keep going. Now, if you treat them bad enough, they may not rebloom for you very well, but I've had some that didn't rebloom, and I started taking care of them again, and here comes the blooms again. So I think that uh, you should give them a try if you never have. It's certainly a gorgeous plant, and they're very inexpensive, really, uh, as far as plants are concerned, especially for something that is that beautiful. And who knows, you may become uh, addicted to orchids, and so now you're trying not just the moth orchid, but many of the other types that are available. By the way, did you know that the vanilla plant that we get our vanilla uh, flavoring from is an orchid? It is actually one of the species of orchids. Kind of cool. Uh, in in uh, taking care of orchids, I mentioned uh, the uh, indirect light, but a very bright light. 
Uh, and then uh, when you pot them up, or when you're repotting them, it's best to use a good quality um, bark type mixture. You can buy bark that's chopped up into little pieces. And you, when you repot them, you cut off all the dead old roots, base of the stem if it's dead, and you put them in this fresh new bark, give them a watering, let it drain, and they get going again. Because again, that's kind of like on the side of a tree where they're grabbing to the bark. Uh, and holding on for, for growth in the jungle. So don't use stuff that holds too much water. I know sometimes they, they come potted in sphagnum moss, and that's okay, but it's easy to overwater in that. And with uh, with bark, it, it not so much. You may once or twice a week, probably twice a week, give them a little bit of water to run right through the bark. It goes right through, and, and then uh, pour out the extra, and they just keep going. Really easy, really easy. Uh, if you've had a Phalaenopsis or a moth orchid and haven't had been able to get it to bloom, th that particular type of orchid likes a period of cool night temperatures for about a month uh, before it initiates its flower spikes. So temperatures near about 65 degrees at night. When they say cool, I'm not talking about what we have now. I mean, just 65 degrees at night. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll take mine in the fall when the night times are, are down in that range and uh, leave them outside uh, for about a month, several weeks, and then bring them in and that that just works. They, they do really well. So uh, I, I've had good reblooming on those as a result. Well, let's see our phone number, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Let's hear what you're interested in. I can keep talking about things I think you're interested in and that I'm interested in, uh, but let's hear from you about the questions that you might have. Uh, it's a good time to plant fruit trees. Uh, if you are planting a bare root fruit tree, this is the time to get that thing in. Uh, bare root fruit trees can be a little less expensive and uh, they do just fine. Uh, if you plant them properly, get the soil firmed in around the roots and water them in well. Uh, Container-grown trees can be planted pretty much any time, but it's better to get them in earlier, meaning now rather than June, for example, uh, because that tree you plant now will be able to establish roots. Any circling roots around the outside of the pot, that, well, the outside of the root cylinder that's inside the pot, um, you want to unwind them or cut them. Don't be afraid to cut circling roots. Uh, I, I did a little experiment one time and we took a, some plants in a nursery center, a garden center, we lifted them up out of the pot and cut all the roots going around in circles. Came back two weeks later and there were fresh little white roots coming out in all directions just from that cut root surface right where we cut them off. And it's just like a branch on a tree. Now, if you went out to one of your trees and you lopped off the end of the branch, what would you expect? to re-sprouting from right behind where you lopped it, lopped it off. That's what roots do. So it's much better to cut them and let, let them where there was one root going in a circle. Now you have several roots that are more likely to move out uh, in all directions and uh, take care of establishing a lot better for you. Just check and make sure that the fruit you, you purchase, uh, uh, whether it does or does not need a pollinator. Peaches pollinate themselves. Uh, and some things like apples and most pears, uh, not all but most, and a lot of plums need a pollinator. 
there are a few exceptions to that, but that's part of checking it out because you don't want to have something that uh, three or four years from now, it's blooming and blooming and you're not getting any fruit and then you find out, well, you needed another variety. All right, let's go to the phones. Our number 845-5689 and we're going to talk to Suzanne. Hello, Suzanne. Hello, how are you today? Well, I'm well today. I'm inside. How are you? <laughs> I'm great, thank you. I'm inside too. Good. I have a question about uh, grow bags. I tried and experimented with those last year. I tried to plant some, well, I did plant some potatoes, mm-hmm. and p- potatoes grew. I, uh, I didn't fill the bag quite full because I just kept adding some soil. Yes. But it was one of these uh, soil mix that you talk about that you get at these, yes. uh, I guess, centers, or you buy it by the load or, you know, pick right. up truck. Okay. Well, the soil, uh, it seemed to compact. And so I was thinking, I, well, I'm not ready to give up on that yet. So would you go with a potting soil, just a bag, like, you know, that you find at your garden center or, or a potting mix? I wanted to try that again on a few bags. I don't do it Yeah. that way. You know, I, I, I will plant some in the ground, but I just I want to give that a try again. What do you say about these grow bags? Well, grow bags are fine. Uh, As far as the soil compacting, if you're not smashing it down, the compaction that it's doing is not a problem. If you look at the seed potatoes that you get at the store, they have almost a clay-like, silty clay-like soil dust attached to them. It's not Uh truly all, all clay, but but. They can grow in a fairly heavy soil as long as the drainage is okay. So I wouldn't worry about that. Um, The thing they want is to get in early so they can get growing because they too are going to produce their tubers and then be done. And you would like that to happen before uh, it gets too blazing hot for them. Uh, I would say that if you, you move, you talked about putting soil in around the plants as they grew. You only need to do that for about six inches. Uh, and in a clay okay. soil, they talk about maybe even doing it a little, you can get by with a little less, but uh, about six inches and certainly not over eight inches of being hilled up. Because uh, have you ever seen pictures of potato towers where there's this thing and like a set up tire on the ground and they plant potatoes oh, yeah. and then put another tire and keep filling yeah. it with compost till it's waist high? Potatoes are not going to produce a potato any higher than about six to eight inches above the ground at the most. Uh, and so the potato tower is just 100% bunk. Um, so all you need to do in your container is plant them so that you can fill in about six inches of soil and they'll, they'll be okay. Okay, but should I not take the soil from the garden? Should I use more of a potting soil that you just buy like in a bag just if I'm experimenting? You, or Yeah, you could do that. You could do that, Suzanne. It's, um, it's not black and white. You have to do it this way or that way. I've grown them in potting soil before. Uh, I've used compost before uh, to grow them. Uh, I've never tried putting garden soil in a container, and for various reasons, we don't recommend that. Maybe a blend with some garden soil mixed with some of the store-bought stuff, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to all that trouble. I would do what's most convenient for you. Oh, okay. All right. Sounds great. How did you, how did you like the, the yeah, how did you like the grow bag, by the way? Yes, I did like them. Uh, 
like I said, the potatoes grew, but uh, the uh, I mean the plant grew, but I didn't get a harvest. They were just very small, so okay. I didn't know if it was the the soil that I used or. Yes. But when I dumped them out, I I tried that because I wanted just to dump them out instead of digging. Yes. You know. Well, down, how how big? You. Yeah. They were just more like oh a large a real large egg. Maybe. Oh, uh, I mean size. the 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 grow bags. How? What? Oh, oh, oh! They were about five to seven gallons. Okay. Well, that ought to that ought to be enough. You can go a little larger than that, but that ought to be enough. You could also put three potatoes in one, put seed pieces in one that's a little larger. Just you know. Put okay. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, let me ask you about that because that's what I've seen online where they show you put like three pieces. Well. Mm-hmm. Uh. Well, how is that? Because, like, when you plant them down in, in your garden row, they, you know, suggest that you plant them about, what, 10 inches or so apart. So if you're planting them in a right. in a grow bag, I mean, that well, they still produce okay like that, well, being that close? Yeah, that, it, it, it depends on several things. Like, I'll be I'll be ridiculous, but let's say the, the bag was only two gallons and you put three uh-huh. in there. Well, you, that's... You're not gonna, you're not gonna get a lot of potatoes from that, but if there's more soil, you can put a little bit more, and you're you're growing them in a very ideal situation. If you've got a quality soil, you're giving them good water and good nutrition, uh, then they're gonna they're gonna do pretty good. The the foliage will go out in all directions. You know, if right. picturing three plants coming out of a, let's say a ten gallon grow bag. Uh, or seven even, and then you're just going to be able to get a little bit more potatoes out of that. Oh. Uh, I was just curious because a lot of people try those bags and they do pretty good. Uh, I've known people too that uh, took like a, a basket or even a, what's the little milk crates? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, right. uh-huh. uh, set them on the ground, put a little soil in the bottom or a little compost mix like you're talking about set the seed piece in there and then as it grew filled up the the mix but all the roots from the potato are going in the ground but at the end you just cut it off below that uh, milk crate and all your potatoes are in compost in that milk crate which is kind of unusual it give the neighbor something to talk about (laughs) yeah well i did have mine up like on a uh, my husband uh we had cinder blocks and put a board down in the garden and, and put them on there but then i read uh maybe to put them on the ground that they might would wick up more moisture that way is that uh probably not through the grow bag that you're probably not going to get any significant amount of moisture moving up sitting on top of the ground i guess if they were standing in water yeah that uh-huh. probably would be the case a little bit of water but uh they, those grow bags are pretty good. I, I like them. They last a while. It's easy to move move them around if they have handles. Uh, but as, as they get really big, then it becomes a little more of a challenge to move them around. Right. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to give that a try. What about it if I bought, I know like the so, the potting soil is a little bit different from your mixes. I guess mm-hmm. something like a miracle Grow that has, uh, it says it feeds for three months, six months, that type of thing. I was just wondering, should I use anything like that that's already kind of yeah. has a fertilizer in there? Well... I don't think, in a slow, that sounds like a slow release, your potatoes are not going to be in long enough to need this long, slow release. If you can get them growing, give them a little bit of fertilizer initially to, to feed them, or use a soluble plant food if you want a few times, 
uh, those potatoes are going to be done before too long. And now you'll still have the fertilizer in the potting soil. So if you plant something else, you still got some there. Uh, okay. But I, I wouldn't worry about it a lot. In fact, maybe you want to experiment. Try some different things and see which works best for you. Okay, all right. I, I sure will. Well, thank you very much for taking my call. All right. I'll experiment once again. <laughs> all right, Suzanne. On all I ask, uh, advice is free, but we do ask that you bring half the produce you grow and drop it off at the station. Uh, that's just a way to tip the host, okay? Where, where is the experiment? I mean, where is the uh, extension office? I know I hear you talk about that, but I live in Burleson County. Oh, Burleson. So where, where do y'all... Where's your office? Uh, well, Burleson's is, is there in, in the Caldwell area. Um, our office is where the county tax office is, which is east of the bypass. If you go out University and cross over Highway 6, uh -huh. it's back in there off to the left. That's a generic description, but it's in the Copperfield, near the Copperfield neighborhood. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll look it up. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Suzanne. Appreciate okay. that. Okay. Okay, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, our phone number, 979, if you're listening outside the area, 979-845-5689, 845-5689, or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Uh, we were talking earlier about planting uh, fruit trees, and this is, you want to, it's also true, you know, with landscape trees and shrubs, the sooner you get them planted, the more time they have for those roots to establish. The first summer is brutal on these young plants because, you know, if you take a tree, let's say you have a little fruit tree and it's about four feet high, if it grew from a seed in that spot, it's going to have roots more than four feet out in all directions, uh, and just because it's, you know, it's reaching out. So we get one that's growing in a round cil or a cylinder and all the roots are wrapped around and the only roots are in that little little cylinder that you buy it with. And so when you put it in the ground, it takes time for those roots to get out and established so that it is more drought resilient and it is able to draw from more soil for the water and nutrients uh, to support the growth of the tree. So earlier is better, earlier is better. So I get out there and boy, our, our garden centers locally have really stocked up on, on some great fruit trees. I was visiting a few the other day and oh my goodness, there's so many options out there. So it's also a good time, by the way, to do perennials. Uh, you get these perennials started and going and uh, some of the, I, my favorite perennials are the salvias. I've probably talked about that before, but uh, salvias, just so many good options. There are some annual salvias, but there's a lot of good perennial salvias. Uh, and so you get those started now and they will just give you blooms uh, to reward you for years to come, coming back year after year. It's a return on investment uh, for what you, what you invested in those plants. Let's talk a little bit. We've got a couple of minutes left, so if there's a quick call, we can take it. Otherwise, I'm going to head out with just some vegetable talk here. Uh, we, are, we are now, of course, in February, and February is the big month for all of the cool season vegetables. We'll call it the last call for cool season vegetables. So if you wanted to plant asparagus, if you wanted to plant um, broccoli, cabbage, cauliflower, kohlrabi, kale, collards, all of those cruciferous greens, now is the time to do it. Uh, it's not the final call for, for radishes, for example, but some of the root crops, uh, radishes and, 
and uh, certainly for carrots, uh, we need to get that done. Uh, and if you're going to grow beets, uh, this is a good time to plant beets. Uh, and turnips, and those are root crops, so they all do well now. Uh, if you're going to plant onions, of course, we need to get those done ASAP. We, they need to be done tomorrow, if you can get them in. Uh, and of course, I mentioned potatoes. Uh, soon, we'll be talking about the warm season garden, you know, the green beans and vegetables and all that stuff. Uh, but now is the time to take care of the cool season as a final call. And uh, oh, one other thing I didn't mention, Swiss chard. It's kind of a mix between the two. As long as it doesn't freeze hard, it'll be okay. Uh, but we can continue planting it on into spring. So it sort of hangs out and joins the warm season garden there for a while. Uh, leafy greens like lettuce and spinach, go ahead and get those done. Don't wait any longer. Uh, this is the month to make sure you get those in. When you plant those, you want to make sure that you give them good moisture, good drainage, good light, and moderate nutrition. Uh, when our soil is cold, the microbial activity slows down a bit and therefore the release of nutrients can slow down and so we just want to give them a little boost to help them through. Uh, the exception to that in the cool season garden would be our cool season peas like English peas, snow peas, snap peas, uh, and those make their own nitrogen and if you push them with a lot of nitrogen uh, it kind of throws things out of whack. You may end up with more vines and less production. Well, you've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter, with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension, and we're here every Thursday from 12 to 1 to answer your gardening questions. In the meantime, you see something, take a picture and email it to me at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.